for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, we take a closer look at how investigators in B.C. got creative in their search for a suspect in the murder of a 13-year-old Vancouver area girl in 2017. They had DNA from the crime scene that pointed them in the direction of a particular community. So they set up a covert way to gather DNA samples, which in fact led them to a suspect who was eventually convicted in the case. But some are now questioning whether the ends justified the means. And a Toronto woman convicted of first-degree murder in the death of her severely disabled daughter in 2011 and sentenced to life in prison was today acquitted of all charges in a retrial. A member of Cindy Ali's defense team joins me to break down the case and explain what led to today's acquittal. How the woolly mammoth lived and roamed what is now North America long ago is usually subject to a fair amount of, our, of artistic license. But thanks to advances in technology, researchers can actually now chart the journeys of real woolly mammoths many thousands of years ago. We hear about the thousand kilometer journey that one 20 year old female called Elma, who lived and died 14,000 years ago in Alaska and the Yukon took and what her life and death tell us about her, her species and the region's earliest humans. But first, actor Alec Baldwin has been indicted for involuntary manslaughter, the fatal shooting of a cinematographer on the New Mexico movie set of Rust in 2021. Special prosecutors, you may remember, dismissed the same charge against Baldwin last April, but brought the case before a grand jury last week in Santa Fe and indicted him once again. So what's changed and what does it mean for Baldwin? We find out. Actor Alec Baldwin has been indicted for involuntary manslaughter in the fatal shooting of a cinematographer on the New Mexico movie set of Rust. You'll remember uh, that these uh, charges were were dismissed a while back. Special prosecutors brought the case before a grand jury in Santa Fe this week, months after receiving a new analysis of the gun involved in the shooting. Baldwin was pointing a gun at Helena Hutchins during rehearsal on the set of the movie Rust in October of 2021 when the gun went off, tragically killing Hutchins and injuring director Joel Su. Reporter Jason Nathanson has more. Prosecutors say there's new analysis of the gun that was used when cinematographer Helena Hutchins was killed and director Joel Souza was wounded in 2021 on the set of the movie Rust. Baldwin was pointing a gun at Hutchins during rehearsal. I take the gun out slowly. I turn, I cock the pistol. Bang, it goes over. She hits the ground. She goes down. He goes down, screaming. Alec Baldwin told police he pulled back the hammer, but not the trigger. I've been doing this. I I shot enough guns in my day in movies. I've never seen this before. A charge of involuntary manslaughter was dismissed last year. Prosecutors said the gun might have malfunctioned. But this new report says the trigger had to have been pulled or depressed. Baldwin's lawyers say they will fight the charge. I'm Ed Donahue. Special prosecutors dismissed an involuntary manslaughter charge against Baldwin in April, saying they were informed the gun might have been modified before the shooting and malfunctioned. Uh, They later began weighing whether to refile a charge against Baldwin after receiving that new analysis of the gun. Well, joining me now uh, is is Nima Ramani. He spoke to us at the time. He's a former federal prosecutor and CEO of West Coast Trial Lawyers in L.A. Welcome back. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me again. Yeah, I mean, I, I felt like at the time that this was probably a done deal, but, but clearly not. What's happened? Well, when it was reported that a grand jury was being convened, it was clear that prosecutors wanted a second bite at the apple. A grand jury has two functions. One is to investigate. And this case is more than two years old. There's no more investigation to be done. And the second reason you convene a grand jury is to charge someone. So that's what happened here. I think prosecutors a year ago 
they weren't ready, and they thought that there was a chance they lose at the preliminary hearing phase, and that's why they dismissed the case. So under the law here in the United States, there's two ways to get to a jury in a felony case. You either go to a preliminary hearing, that's essentially a mini trial before the judge, and the judge has to determine whether there's probable cause, or you go to a grand jury, and a grand jury is a secret proceeding where only the prosecutor presents evidence, and it just requires a simple majority. That's why they say a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich, and that's what happened here. That being said, I mean, there, there seems to be reason now, or at least evidence, that the prosecution is more comfortable with, perhaps. Perhaps, but that FBI ballistics report was available a long time ago, and it's really a questionable case against Baldwin because you have few individuals involved. You have Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, who, of course, is the armor. I think she's the most culpable. Her job is to maintain these weapons and to make sure they're safe. But then you have assistant director Dave Hall. He's the one who gave Baldwin a gun and told him that it was a cold gun. Now, the problem with the case is prosecutors gave Dave Hall a no-time misdemeanor deal. So he's not doing any time. So it's unclear why you would charge him with essentially a slap on the wrist well, you're trying to put Baldwin in state prison with a felony. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, as you mentioned, David Hall has pleaded no contest on safe handling, I guess, about uh, and last March was given a suspended sentence. Uh, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed has pleaded not guilty to involuntary manslaughter and evidence tampering. Her trial uh, begins in February. Uh, so in this case, um, obviously Baldwin denies this, but what happens now? Well, Baldwin is going to push his case to trial. He has a strong defense, and it's not just on the merits, I mean, he cares about his reputation. Here's someone who's an actor, and he's gone publicly and given interviews with ABC and Stephanopoulos and proclaimed his innocence. Now, he says that he just cocked the hammer. He didn't pull the trigger. So at trial, the prosecution is going to have to have one of a few theories of the case. They should have, that maybe, for instance, Baldwin shouldn't have pointed the gun at Helena Hutchins, even if he truly believed it wasn't loaded, despite her request. The second, of course, being that uh, he pulled the trigger despite doing so. And the third is something that the district attorney said, that even if he was told that it was a cold gun, that he had an independent duty to inspect the gun himself to confirm. Right. And you've said uh, already that, uh, that that the prosecution can't just rely. I mean, I think the way the story was sort of structured as it came out today uh, was that there was a sort of, no, no pun intended, this smoking gun, right? Uh, that's not the case. You think there has to be a lot more uh, to the prosecution's case uh, than the ballistics? Yeah, there really does, because for manslaughter, you know, the example I like to give is, you know, if I'm driving today and I accidentally kill someone, that's not manslaughter. But if I'm texting, I'm under influence or drugs or alcohol, that is. So there's got to be something more than simple negligence. So, you know, the prosecution it really has a few theories here, but I don't think many of them fit. And to get 12 out of 12 jurors unanimously to believe beyond a reasonable doubt that Baldwin was criminally negligent, that's a tough hill to climb. And let's be honest. Jurors in the United States, they love celebrities. They do very well in both criminal and civil cases. Yeah. Uh, and you, you sort of pointed out, pointed to some, what you thought were missteps by the prosecution uh, from the get-go as well here. Uh, what did you mean? Well, this case has been botched from the beginning. So forget the fact that it's taken more than two years to bring charges. And these cases get worse over time for prosecutors. You know, witness memories fade, evidence disappears. But there's a number of procedural missteps, too. Prosecutors charged an unconstitutional enhancement. They tried to put Baldwin away for a five-year mandatory minimum sentence. The problem was that law was passed after the Rust shooting, so it was an unconstitutional application of that law. 
The defense filed their motion. Prosecutors had to withdraw it. The other thing the district attorney did is that it appointed a special prosecutor who was a member of the New Mexico state legislature. Well, that's a separation of powers issue. You can't have someone that's a prosecutor, part of the executive branch, and part of the legislature at the same time. So the defense filed a motion to disqualify that prosecutor stepped down. And, of course, we know that the prosecutors just weren't ready. They weren't ready for a preliminary hearing, so they brought charges. Baldwin asserted his right to a speedy trial, and, you know, the prosecutor had egg on her face, had to dismiss and refile almost a year later. So a lot of missteps here, and we know Baldwin has essentially unlimited resources. He's had the best and the brightest lawyers, and he's going to defend this case and defend it rigorously. So I think he has a leg up here. Yeah. And as you mentioned, uh, because we don't have a grand jury system in Canada, that uh, that this is not exactly the sign that somehow the case is a lot stronger than it was a year ago. No, not at all. I mean, I put more than a thousand people in prison. I never once had an issue with the grand jurors. You know, the grand jurors, they hear a one-sided account of the evidence. There's, there's no one there, aside from the prosecutor, court reporter, and the grand jurors themselves. It's really a low standard probable cause. You need a simple majority, depending on the state, 12 out of 23 jurors. So it's a very easy to get a grand jury indictment. I don't want listeners to think that, well, you know, this was some sort of uh, legal feat. It's not. It's just the first step. And frankly, it was done to get around that preliminary hearing because there was a possibility that they lose if they brought this before a judge. Great to have Nima Romani back on the show. Uh, he's a former federal prosecutor and CEO of West Coast Trial Lawyers in Los Angeles. Last we had him on, we were talking about the fact that charges against uh, Alec Baldwin over this uh, incident involved that left um, someone dead at on the, on the set of Rust back in New Mexico in 2021 um, had been dismissed. Now they've been uh, he's been indicted again uh, after a grand jury uh, decided on that. Helene Hutchinson, uh, the cinematographer, uh, Hutchins rather, was the victim uh, back in, in October of 2021. We've been talking about why the grand jury would indict again, what it means for Alec Baldwin and so on. Uh, there's a lot of other matters in front of the courts, I gather. This is this Does this put everything on hold other than that other criminal trial for the uh, the person who was responsible um, for the guns on, on the set uh, that we talked about a bit earlier? Well, the criminal cases will have priority, and of course, Hannah Gutierrez reads will go forward first because it was filed first. Then Baldwin's criminal case will trail. So the civil cases will be stayed or put on hold while the criminal case is pending because, of course, Baldwin has a constitutional right not to incriminate himself, a right to remain silent under the Fifth Amendment here. So he won't have to testify in those civil cases if there's any potential criminal case proceeding. But there is one very important civil case that we need to talk about, and that was the wrongful death lawsuit brought by Matt Hutchins, the surviving widow of uh, Helena Hutchins. And importantly, he settled that case, and he is now an executive producer and has equity in the movie Rust. And importantly, he said that he believes that this is an accident and that Baldwin shouldn't be charged. So if I'm Alex Baldwin's lawyer, that's the first person I call as a defense witness. If the surviving spouse thinks it's an accident and he shouldn't be prosecuted, then why are we bringing this case at all? Are you surprised then at all about uh, about how the uh, the prosecution in New Mexico has been handling this? I am surprised. This is, in my more than 20 years of practice, one of the most mishandled cases I've ever covered. And for the district attorney to come out and make public statements and say that Alec Baldwin belongs in prison because he should have inspected the gun and then have to dismiss and not refile for a year. I mean, this is a case that has dragged on for far too long. It's far too weak of a case, and the statements have been 
far too pronounced, and she really has egg on her face. We're going to see if she's able to pull a rabbit out of a hat, but I think this is a case that looks like she's going to lose, if I had to make a prediction today. Right. And yet the stakes, I mean, you know, this, the consequences of this could be very serious for, for Alec Baldwin himself, should it go the other way. It could, but now that that enhancement has been stricken down, he's really only looking at a Class D felony in New Mexico, and that is punishable by up to 18 months in prison. But if I'm Baldwin and I push this case to trial, and even if I'm convicted, I show up at sentencing and I say, well, Your Honor, how am I differently situated from Dave Hall's? He didn't get any time. You know, so you want to sentence me to prison when someone was arguably at least as culpable or more culpable. He's someone that made a representation that the gun was safe without checking. So I think even if he's convicted in the not likely event that that happens, I don't think he's going to be sentenced to significant time in prison, if any. Yeah, I guess there's reputation on the line here a bit too, right? I mean, Baldwin uh, obviously feels... Has, has expressed a lot of remorse about what happened, feels that he was not responsible for what happened. Um, and in this case, uh, there, there's a bit of a reputational issue for him, too. The fact that this has come back up again, here we are talking about him again. Oh, I agree. And I think Baldwin, you know, when he's handling this case, there's a whole legal strategy, but a PR one as well. And typically when people are being investigated, they don't make public statements. They don't give interviews. Lawyers always advise their clients to keep their mouth shut. But Baldwin was doing this. So there's a PR component. I think his publicists also want to make sure that they not only win in the courtroom, but the court of public opinion, because it's going to matter to Baldwin and his family. Right. So what next, then, in the short term? What happens now? The next is going to be an arraignment. So Baldwin may have to show up in person, or they may waive his personal appearance, but essentially he's going to plead not guilty. So then I don't expect there to be any type of reasonable plea offer that's made. And certainly Baldwin will not accept one. So there's not going to be a plea negotiation behind the scenes. I don't expect that to happen at all. And the next step will be a pretrial date where the court will set the case for trial and any pretrial motions, such as some of the motions to dismiss that we talked in the first case, if there's any new ones that need to be brought well, Neva, thank you so much for your time. As always, I guess we'll be talking about this again at some point. So thank you for, uh, thank you for joining me on a Friday night. Of course. Thanks for having me, as always. Look, there's smoke. That's his herd right up the hill. We should return him. Let's get something straight here, okay? There is no we. There never was a we. In fact, without me, there wouldn't even be a you. Just up the hill. Listen very carefully. I'm not going. Fine, be a jerk. I'll take care of him. Oh, yeah, that's good. You'll take care of him. You can't even take care of yourself. This I gotta see. There you have it. A clip from 2002's Ice Age, right? How the woolly mammoth lived and roamed in what is now North America very long ago, very long ago, is usually subject to a fair amount of artistic license, like Manfred or Manny the Mammoth in that clip from Ice Age, a voice by Ray Romano, of course, back in 2002. There have been many of those movies now. I think uh, I think Manny's been in all of them. Uh, but now, thanks to advances in technology, researchers can actually chart the journey of a single, real woolly mammoth that lived many thousands of years ago. A new study traces the 1,000-kilometer journey of a woolly mammoth from western Yukon to the interior of Alaska, where she died about 14,000 years ago, near a hunting camp for some of the region's earliest humans. 
Analysis of the mammoth's tusk has unlocked new insights or insights into the Ice Age species. The tusk belonged to that female mammoth. She was about 20 when she died in the, quote, prime of her life or in the prime of early adulthood. Uh, that, according to the research, which was published just Wednesday in the journal Science Advances. Um, the research then co- suggests uh, that humans and woolly mammoths coexisted for at least a thousand years or that the mammoths coexisted for at least a thousand years with some of the very first people to cross the Bering Land Bridge here into North America. Joining me now is Hendrik Poinar. He's director at the Ancient DNA Center at McMaster University. This is part of his research, so it's fascinating. He can tell us exactly what, how they managed to track the journey of a single woolly mammoth 14,000 years ago. Hendrik, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Ben. Happy to be here. Just a little bit about the woolly mammoth itself so that people sort of just to set the table. I mean, how long ago, when did it roam our neck of the woods and when did it disappear? Oh, well, well, the woolly mammoth has been on our landscape, you know, ranging from Alaska all the way to Nova Scotia uh, and as far south as as some of the southern states about 500,000 years ago. So it had a huge and of course, I'm not even talking about the Siberian, Siberian side all the way into Europe. So it's probably the most diverse what we call a panmitic population. So this, you know, an entire species range that goes from, you know, the western coast, the western coast of of Europe, all the way across Siberia, through parts of China, across the Bering Land Bridge, Alaska, through the Yukon, all the way across our our provinces, and then down all the way into parts of the continental U.S. And that survives. They survive five hundred thousand years, um, and the typical extinction, what we call the extinction horizon, is about. 11,000, 10,000. But, you know, something really interesting, Ben, one of my grad students who worked here is now at the Hakai Institute out on the island where, where you guys are, mm-hmm. is uh, uh, he's he looked at teaspoons of dirt from places in uh, the Yukon. And it turns out that their small relictual populations of mammoths probably survived to about 5,000 years ago. Okay. So, yeah. So, so when, you know, the Egyptians, when the, you know, the Pyramids were being built. There were still woolies up in the, U- in the Yukon. Amazing to think about it. I, I, tell me about a, a bit about how you the journey that you tracked of this one woolly mammoth that you call Emma, I believe. Yeah, yeah, El- Elma is a particularly Elma. yes fascinating uh, uh, adult female, twenty years of age, and this this work is all chronicled in the isotopes of her tusk and some DNA work as well. And uh, I'd be remiss to not. Uh, mentioned immediately Matt Wooler out of the University of Alaska Fairbanks, who did the state isotope work, and his graduate student, Avi Rowe, who's done for the fine-scale meticulous work. So the, the first thing to know, Ben, is that trunk um, tusks on woolly mammoths, they grow kind of like trees, right, in the sense that they have annual rings. And if they don't really grow in the exact same way. In fact, Matt Matt describes it in a very clever way. You, you, you know when you, you used to go in the summer and you get your ice cream cone and they have the stacked sugar cones? Right. right? So it, imagine the tip of that sugar cone is actually the protruding tusk. And so each year you had, just imagine the sugar cones just being slowly built up onto it until you get this six foot long, massively heavy tusk, right? Protruding, both, you know, two of them protruding, of course, from the front of, of Elma's skull. Now, what you can do is you can dissect that you cut the skull uh, you cut the uh, the tusk perfectly in half and you look for those rings and you take those little tiny rings and you cut out you know millimeter amounts and you look at the isotopes of those rings so these are just the elements the isotopes of three elements that actually can then map back to a landscape right so you look at sulfur 
you look at strontium, you look at oxygen, and then you use that to triangulate where she was on the landscape because right. underlying geology sort of emits these isotopes. The isotopes get in the sediment, the plants absorb them, and then the mammoth, of course, is chewing them. And all those isotopes then get built into the protein and the collagen and the dentin that forms these long tusks. Right. So you were able then to trace this, what I gather was a very long journey for, uh, for this 20-year-old female woolly mammoth. Yeah, that's right. So the data suggests that she really hung out in, in the western part of Yukon for, for, you know, her formative years. And then as she became sort of a fully mature, probably at the age where she's actually leading, perhaps leading, the, you know, the, the head of the matriarchal herd, right? Um, she then starts to wander from the Yukon into Alaska and in three years traverses about a thousand kilometers in wow. space. Right. And that, you know, the, the data are so meticulous that not only can you tell the route, but you can tell if she preferred the highlands. So in an area where there was, you know, you could, uh, it seems that she was probably a little more reticent to go down into the valley because there's probably, you know, maybe there's danger down there. You know, you have simtar cats, which are like the saber tooth versions on the North American side. And then, of course, ultimately, you have humans. Wow. And so what what. um you found, of course, I, I suppose what's most revealing about this, about her journey, unfortunately, was how it ended. It's sort of sad to think about this amazingly beautiful creature then leading, you know, these small juveniles and a baby that we find at the site. Clearly, that was part of her herd. So there, from the DNA that we did at, at multiple mammoths from the site, that juvenile and that baby were clearly related to her, but were probably like first or second cousins. They weren't direct. They weren't her children herself. And they and those juveniles and the baby end up in this hunter's camp at Swan Point. And her the only actually remnant of Elma that's there is her tusk. So she must have been either hunted in another location or perhaps she died for, for some other reason that we're not quite sure. But what was quite clear in her tusk um, is that she did not die of starvation. So there was a mammoth that, you know, we did, we worked on um, a few years ago. Kick was a large male mammoth that lived much older. You know, it was about 30 or 33 years of age. And he died of starvation. You can see that again in the tusk signatures at the end of his life. So in this case, Elma died or was hunted. And then her tusk was clearly brought to the hunting camp and then reworked for, you know, you know, beautiful art. It could be used for, for, you know, cultural artifacts that were then handed or traded or used for all sorts of interesting things. And of course, a large mammoth is, is a huge source of protein and fat for diet of early peoples living there in Alaska. Yeah. And you mentioned your best guess is that she was hunted. The best, the best guess is that she was hunted. I mean, it makes sense. So the, these, it's clearly, when you look at the archeology span of those sites, there's tons, you know, litters of these um, microblades, right? So super, super sharp stone uh, artifacts that actually fit into long spear points, almost, so you can think of it as a barbed dart, actually, that they use to actually hunt the mammoths. And these, and if you if you take that archeological complexes that you find at that Swan Point, and you say, if you were just to hand that to a really good archeologist of early people, they would not be able to distinguish those artifacts in Alaska from the ones, the same ones you find in Siberia, Hokkaido, Japan, and other parts of China. So these were big game hunters that were traversing huge landscapes and are directly descendant of, of ones living across the Bering right. Land Bridge on the other side. Interesting, following some of the same journeys that the mammoths themselves had followed much much earlier, I guess. This, I mean, what's always been interesting about this, I think, is the, is the time frame. Because I gather for quite a while, we weren't convinced, especially, well, for this part of the world, at least, um, yeah. that humans and the mammoths 
coexisted. Is that right? Well, yeah, I mean, or, I think there. What, what have we found out from this? I guess is probably the better <laughs> question. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is this is the one of the earliest, I mean, the earliest archaeological site in Alaska. Um, and so it's, it represents one of those first early waves into North America. And then from Alaska, of course, they're coming down through the glacial sheets between Yukon and Alberta and then heading down south. You know, whether or not there was this coastal migration as well, that seems to be pretty evident. What the timing was, not exactly clear. But this clearly shows that mammoths and humans overlap for at least a thousand years, right? So, um, which always brings back the big debate, which was, you know, raging with the paleontologists, I would say two decades ago when I was starting out my graduate work was, was you know, climate killed them, hunters killed them, right? There was just sort of this right. binary that was working in the, you know, and people were, oh man, I used to, as a grad student, it used to freak me out to go to these conferences because people were throwing <laughs> stuff at each other. Really? It's that heated. <laughs> yeah. no, no pun intended, yeah. yes. Yeah. Super heated, super heated. And so, I, you know, clearly the data suggests it's much more nuanced, right? So the climate was really fluctuating at this time. And so that puts a lot of pressure on these animals. The incredible thing about these animals is these, not, these are not rodents that live within a hundred you know, meter radius. These animals are traveling thousands of kilometers. So they're looking for environments and landscapes that'll support them. At the same time, if they're always coming back to the same localities, it makes sense for humans that are trying to feed large communities to hunt in those grounds, right? So clearly, and what we try to illustrate with Julius's artwork is that these are these are big game hunters that are clearly tracking, you know, the, these animals, you know, bison, uh, horses, mammoth, onto onto this open landscape that must have been a great foraging ground for these large herbivores, and they were, you know, hunting them. Makes sense. Hendrik Poinar is with us. He's director of the Ancient DNA Center at McMaster University in Hamilton. We're talking about some research that he's done, he's collaborated on, which traces the journey some 14,000 years ago, the 1,000-kilometer journey of a woolly mammoth named Elma, who... Uh, who apparently moved from Western Yukon, where she sort of spent her formative years, and then went on this long trek alongside other members of her herd, um, where she was then, she died. We don't know how she died specifically. The best uh, guess is that she was hunted, and this happened all about 14,000 years ago. And it reveals not only a lot about this individual mammoth, but also a lot about the world that she occupied at the time. And that has been a source of debate, as Heinrich uh, has been mentioning uh, earlier. So, where to from here with this? Because it does reveal some stuff um, that uh, that seems like it's it's. I mean, I guess the technology is getting better and better, so we're better, better, we're better able to figure out exactly what was going on all those many millennia ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we're in in the process right now, actually, of sequencing Elma's entire genome. So the the human genome, I don't know if you you know Ben, is about three billion bases. So the bases being the four letters that make up DNA, A C G T. So we're about three billion. Mammoths and elephants are about five billion. So an wow. additional two, two billion. So these are big genomes. <laughs> it sort of fits right with big yeah. animals. Yeah. Um, and so we're trying to piece that back together because it turns out you know we can do genomics straight from the sediment. So without even processing. Uh, tusks or or mammoth fur or bones we can actually get the dna at these sites and actually trace them back because what we'd really like to do is elma had ancestors they were clearly living on this landscape it'd be really interesting to track how many of her ancestors returned back to this landscape you know over the course of several thousand years before humans even arrive and and to think that you know when we started this 
work on woolly mammoths generally in, in genetics, it was mostly about trying to figure out what clades or different types of mammoths were living on different parts of the Canadian or the American landscape. Now it's actually, the, we have so much DNA from so many of these mammoths, we can actually start tracking individuals. And if we can then take this stable isotope stuff and actually get behavior, right? So this her path gives us some indication to her thinking process. Oh, she, you know, she went along this way. She usually followed some streams and rivers, but at some points when there was open landscape, she seems to climb to the highlands and there's this, yeah. right? So it's amazing that an ice, you know, three little elements or isotopes of three elements in a layer of a tusk gives us some sort of insight into her behavior and her thinking. I mean, I, I find that, to me, that blows me away. Well, what if it blows you away, you can imagine what it does to, <laughs> to someone, to a non-scientist. It is absolutely remarkable that you can trace yeah. the journey and sort of the decision-making in yeah. um, in a migration of a woolly mammoth 14,000 years ago. I mean, it really, yeah. it really is. A, and, and the idea that you can open all this, this knowledge around these debates we've been having for so long, because I think the disappearance of the woolly mammoth for the non-scientist yeah. Uh, sort of uh, lies quite large in the in the imagination. It does. It does. That's a great point, Ben. It absolutely does. There's this almost feels like a hole. It's not that long since ancestors, uh, you know, seriously, first people in, in, you know, across our continent here had direct contact with these beasts. It's not that long ago, actually. And so not in the grand, grand feels, scheme of things. No, not in the grand scheme no, of things. At no, all. really not. You know, so it, it it feels like a missing piece on the landscape. And you know what when you have keystone species and the mammoth is a keystone species, and all that means is that animal has a larger than singular effect on a landscape, right? So elephants generally and mammoths were what we call eco-engineers, environmental engineers. And so they're reworking the landscape. They're digging, they're moving trees down. And what does that do? Well, that brings in rodents and then wolves to follow the rodents and hares and birds. And so, you know, when that disappears on a landscape, the landscape changes in a way, you know, that that's irreversible, right? Uh, so it's, it, yeah, it's painful. I mean, as a kid, I always wanted to see these beasts. I mean, that was my love. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. I, I was wanted... fascinated by them. I couldn't believe that we had had something that looked like those exotic elephants from away that had yeah. roamed where we were. Oh yeah. Yeah. Very close. Very close. I mean, they were by you actually. Yeah. Fossil by you, Ben. So yeah. remarkable, remarkable. Yeah. And, and I guess yeah. it does. I mean, back to your debate with, you know, uh, scientists throwing stuff at each other over this debate. I guess we are figuring out more. We will figure out more and more about why exactly they vanished. And and I and, and as you pointed out, it's probably like all things, uh, probably there are a multitude of explanations. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think, you know, there, these paleontologists of of the yesteryears were, were very pitted on defending their hypotheses, which were well built off their own sets of data, but they were sort of pigeonholed into these climate versus humans. And clearly that, you know, like you said, these things are multifactorial, they're not singular events. And so I think understanding that is really critical, you know, so what did mammoth population dynamics look like in the past over the last glacial maximum when we know there were no humans on the landscape? How did they rebound? And they did rebound, right? So, okay, so what's different about when we get to this Pleistocene-Holocene from 10,000 to 9,000, we know there's, again, a massive climatic upheaval, cold, warm, cold, and then eventually back to warm, called the Younger Dryas. That was a pretty big shock to the system, but this time it's coupled with the arrival of big game hunters. And if you think about the gestation period for a woolly man, they take, you know, one cub, one calf every two years, right? Oh, That's wow. a long, long, right? So you can imagine you take out a few breeding females, Elma, 
as an example, and you 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 damage a herd relatively easily and quickly. Well, Hendrik, uh, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for sharing it with me. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure, Ben. Let's head to Toronto tonight because there was acquittal, an acquittal in a very high-profile murder case uh, today there, more than a decade after being convicted of the murder of her, or nearly a decade after being convicted of the murder of her 16-year-old daughter. A judge today acquitted Cindy Ali and set her free. Now in her 50s, Ali had been arrested and charged shortly after the death of her severely disabled daughter, Sanara. Uh, this was back in 2011. Now, she had told police at the time that she had been the victim of a home invasion, telling them that two men had broken in to the home looking for a package. Um, she told police and later testified that one of the men escorted her room to room looking for the item. And when she returned to the living room, Sanara, her daughter, who was uh, had cerebral palsy and had been cared for by the family all her life, was lifeless on the couch with the other man standing next to her with a pillow in his hand, she testified. The two men, though, were never found. Uh, Cindy called 911 to report the break-in. First responders found Sonara without vital signs, vital signs rather. Um, she was resuscitated and brought to the hospital where she died just over a day later. Uh, but police very quickly focused on mom, focused on mom, uh, didn't believe the story about the home invasion. And um, the prosecution at the initial trial said that there had been no home invasion, that Ellie had murdered her daughter. She was convicted in 2016 and sentenced to life in prison. That was overturned on appeal in 2021. A retrial was ordered to take place. That happened late last year. And today, uh, you know, more than a decade after Sonara's death, her mom, for the very first time since, or almost for the very first time since, uh, is a free woman. Here's what Cindy Ali had to say on the courthouse steps today, right after she emerged from the courtroom. After today, it's going to be our time as a family to start healing and, and grieving, but not forgetting Sonara, because she's still here with me. It's been really tough. It's really, this has been a really rough road for us. Hey, it feels good to be free. <laughs> so was this indeed a miscarriage of justice? What lessons could we learn from this case? Jessica Zita is a partner with the law firm Lockyer, Zadak & Z in Toronto. She was part of Cindy Ali's defense team, and she joins me now. Jessica, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. I suppose just, I mean, we saw reaction from Cindy herself today, but just for the whole uh, team that was involved with her defense now for for years, uh, just your reaction to today's decision. Well, I think uh, Mr. Lockyer said it best in front of court uh, this morning, uh, relief, a huge, huge wave of relief. Uh, this has been a very long path for us, having done the appeal and then the trial was actually supposed to start last year, but had to be adjourned. And I'm well, sorry, last year, two years ago now to 2022. And then right. uh, it was adjourned to 2023 where it actually began. So just it was a uh, modelist, this trial. And, you know, there's a lot to respond to in the Crown's case. And having finished that and coming to this point, it's, it's almost like I just don't have the words. And that's just me and, you know, James, who've, been involved in the appeal and then there's Cindy who's had to and her family who've had to live with this since I mean that she was charged in 2012 but Sinara passed away in 2011. Yeah, for, for audience for listeners who mightn't be familiar with this case completely uh, just take me back over some of the what what she was accused of having done and then what happened because I gather this even before uh, now this has been a very or had been a very lengthy court process. Yes so uh, it started in 
February, February 19th, 2011, uh, Cindy Ali, our client, called the police, called 911. And after she had found her daughter, Sanara Ali, not breathing, she was unresponsive. And Sanara um, was 16 at the time and um, had cerebral palsy. Uh, Cindy also told 911 that there had been a break and enter and two men, two masked men had entered her home. Sanara was able to be resuscitated, but two days later, midnight, between the 20th and the 21st of February of that year, she was taken off life support. And police from the very beginning were uh, suspicious of the circumstances in which Sonara died. Pathology was uh, not really conclusive in that sense. You know, sometimes pathology autopsies will say homicide was the cause. Um, Sonara's pathology did not reveal that there were a number of options for which she could have which could have caused her death um and it wasn't until march 2012 so over a year later that cindy was charged initially with manslaughter and then six months after that she was charged with it was upgraded to first degree murder and in that time the police uh, investigated her and the family quite thoroughly and uh, were just always of the mind that something else happened here that was not being told to them and secondly, that the home invasion story, I shouldn't call it story, the home invasion that Cindy had reported to them, mm-hmm. um, in fact, didn't happen. And that's sort of uh, the jumping point for what became of this uh, prolonged ordeal right. for Cindy. Their, their investigative path was set uh, to some extent. Uh, what was interesting, I think, about the appeal, so she's then convicted uh, by a jury. Yes. Uh, this yes, then goes in to a, in 2016. She's convicted and sentenced to life in prison without eligibility for parole. And, and and at the time, there's there's then an appeal. And I was interested in in knowing because the court clearly presented this as a case whereby she had uh, allegedly had this was either I guess a mercy killing that that it was she had smothered her daughter. Well, that wasn't. Yeah, or was that put up because you you mentioned that the jury had been hamstrung in the appeal. In other words, they were offered two two alternatives, neither of which. Were, in, were neither of which were, were sort of fair to your client. Yeah, it, the, the MERS killing idea was something that uh, the police, that drove the police investigation in the early right. days. But at the first trial in 2016, it wasn't the uh, prosecution's theory. Right. Prosecution's theory was that Cindy had come to, like Sonara had lived too long, because Sonara had a life expectancy of three years. And, you know, the family did everything in their power to, to make her life as healthy as possible. And I, I think for all intents and purposes, did it quite successfully because she yeah. outlasted that by uh, many, many years. And the Crown's theory was that Cindy had just um, uh, really grown sick of it and used a number of instances of motive to support that. Right. And the Court of Appeal and you know the uh, home invasion was staged. And it was staged to uh, cover up what actually had happened. And so the issue you're talking about with the jury being hamstrung or straightjacketed to conviction was um, in the jury charge, the instruction given to the jury at the end of the case, upon which they decided the verdict, they were told that if you don't believe her story uh, of the home invasion, essentially she's guilty of first degree murder, which uh, in the Court of Appeal judgment, there's uh, a number of inferences that can be drawn for that much more than just uh, lying so murder first degree murder. And uh, that's where really what the primary error was, where the primary error was found. And the Court of Appeal also found that the motive that was put to the jury was uh, 
really quite meager. And the, the evidence in support of it was really meager. It was almost to constitute no evidence at all, and that it shouldn't have been um, allowed in. Right. And so then this case is then, uh, once it is, the appeals court overturns it, she's then released on bail because she's been in prison at this whole time, right? I mean, she's in, been in prison since she was convicted, which is me- several years at this point. Well, it was four years. She actually yeah. was released uh, on bail pending appeal before the appeal. Okay. Uh, we argued in February 2021, and the appeal was uh, allowed in May of that year. But she had been released on bail pending appeal, I think it was April of 2020. Right. So still still, still some time behind bars for yeah, this. She, she had yeah, been, she had served her four years of, of her life sentence in a penitentiary setting. And then it goes back to trial again, uh, this time around, yes. in front of a judge only, uh, not a jury yes. like the last time. And in this case, uh, how does it unfold? in terms of what does the prosecution present as its case and, and how, how do you defend it? So this time around is the mercy killing, mercy killing theory, uh, okay. uh, which which was that um, rather than Cindy having grown tired of uh, having Sonara being alive still, Cindy had actually loved her so much that she could not stand to see her suffer anymore. And the night before Sonara went into cardiac arrest, she had three seizures because she had epilepsy as well. And um, the Kant's theory was after having watched her go through those three seizures, she just couldn't bear it anymore. And when she was home alone the next day, uh, that's when she acted and smothered her to death. And the evidence at trial this time around, I mean, it was... Not as I mean, they, you know, they weren't using immigration or money as uh, there were none. There was no motive like that. It kind of was the same in terms of the home invasion didn't happen, and that that was the basis for um, like she's lying about this because she's covering up something else. Right. And the op- the evidence they used in terms of proving that the home invasion didn't happen was the same that was used at the first trial, which was evidence of a firefighter who attended. It was one of the very first responders on scene who said that uh, there was no footprints because there was there was snow and there was no footprints. And so she must have, uh, she was clearly lying about that because if people had entered the home because there's so much snow on the ground, there would have been footprints was his idea. Right. And he, he said this in the 911 call that he entered while Cindy's still on the phone with, with 911. So it was sort of like a spontaneous uh, utterance. Jessica Zita is a partner with the law firm Lockyer Zedek and Z in Toronto and part of Cindy Ali's defense team. Cindy Ali is a Toronto mom who was convicted uh, more than a decade ago now in the death or in the first degree murder of her 16 year old daughter who was severely disabled. She had a number of conditions and was not able to care for herself at all. Uh, and she was convicted of first degree murder in her death uh, about a decade ago. Uh, that was overturned on appeal eventually. And today she was acquitted, much to the celebration of, of her many supporters in the courtroom. Uh, of course, her her family is kept together this whole time and so on. Jessica, is it, is it possible in this case, because this is one of those complicated cases where you can you can actually believe that Cindy Ali's story about the home invasion wasn't true, and yet she's not guilty of anything. And, and I think that's where legally, that's where this case has always been sort of interesting, because those two facts could be very true. And yet from the get-go, it seemed like police didn't believe one could be exclusive of the other, uh, one had to, one couldn't be exclusive of the other. That's sort of that's inter- that's an interesting point. It's a call. It's a complaint that Mr. Lockyer made on when arguing the appeal. He said that this case became more about whether a home invasion happened rather than a murder. 
which is, uh, I, I think, a very fair statement it based, you know, in terms of how the investigation played out. And um, it was hard to tell at times what, what was the driving force, this home invest, this home invasion or how this little girl came to die. What can we learn from this one, though? Because clearly, uh, you know, James Lockyer's reputation, your colleague James Lockyer's reputation is well known for taking up cases that he firmly believes there's been a miscarriage of justice. I think from the get-go, uh, I don't know whether from the get-go he assumed that this there was a problem here, but I think the moment he sat down with Cindy Ali, he came very quickly to believe that she'd been wrongfully convicted here. What can we take away from this this long and, and, and fairly complicated case, to be honest? I think similar to what you can take away from um many wrongful convictions, which is sometimes the police get it wrong. Uh, You know, that's a really simple way of putting it. But someone very early on decided that what she was saying could not be. And that was the path chosen and stuck to. And it isn't it's interesting. um, And I find interesting from an academic standpoint, how many people just knowing that the police and and the, the state did not believe her story meant that they didn't believe her story either. And when I asked, well, why don't you believe it? There was nothing there. There was nothing to explain it. It was just so pervasive that the tone was set to not believe this. And when you think about it, like why to not believe it, you know, you have to, because it doesn't seem it's an odd home invasion. I mean, that assumes that crime is perfect and has a perfect form. Mm-hmm. We we know that it that's not true. It's just you know, as a criminal defense lawyer, you see all kinds of things. You know, unfortunately, very little of it makes sense ever. So why in this situation is that? Are we looking at it so stringently? And so I, I think the takeaway is what it should be in every case. Like what what is actually happening here? And sometimes you need to. I don't want to say reinvestigate. You don't. You know, it's not good to do the police work for them, but to maybe look at the building blocks of the case and uh, look at them objectively and look at them, look at them with the mind of what I, what you think this means, rather than just accepting without any other background knowledge, what you're being told. Right. Maybe question your assumptions too, in a case like this one, because I can see where the police Made, I can you can you can sort of see where the police made the mistake here, but at the same time, questioning the assumptions because clearly the corroborating evidence to whatever their theory was was simply not nearly enough, as as now two justices have have said. You know, I think that it was enough to get heard as evidence. I mean, it's it's also how it's packaged. Right, you, you're being told like people are connecting. You connect what you want to connect. And everyone does. Everyone is, you know, sees things the way that they want to see them. I think that's one thing in, in the criminal justice system that people should never take for granted is that often decisions are made. It, it's human error. And that's all we're doing is managing it. And humans are making these decisions that impact other humans' lives. And everything can be open to interpretation. Jessica, thank you so much for, for walking me through the case. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is a really interesting story because it was a case that was really heavily covered in BC. Um, There was a conviction in the case, uh, an arrest and a conviction. And now it's come out that that there was some inventive uh, investigative techniques used 
to track down a suspect that led to that conviction. So uh, BC Premier David Eby says, has, was asked this week about this, uh, he struggles with the idea that police should have conducted an undercover operation or should not have conducted an undercover operation that led to the arrest and conviction of Ibrahim Ali for the murder of a 13-year-old girl. Uh, the information in pretrial recordings obtained by the Canadian press says that officers posed as tea marketers at a Kurdish community celebration in Burnaby, BC, and secretly obtained the DNA of about 150 people, and that Ali's brother was among the group, and E.B. says Ali's lawyers argued on his behalf. And he was convicted, and he is in jail, which is where he belongs. To now, after the trial is complete, after these issues have all been considered, uh, to be going back uh, to say to the police who made our community safe again. From this particular predator, they should not have done what they did. I really struggle with that analysis. Yeah, and BC's premier, of course, was a big former civil liberties guy, right? Still, here are the details of the case. Ali was convicted last month, by the way, in the 2017 murder. Undercover police investigating this murder um, had DNA from the crime scene that led them to the Kurdish community. Uh, They had done some volunteer to voluntary uh, DNA submissions and so on, but they hadn't been able to pinpoint a suspect yet. So um, they then set up this tea marketing thing to secret, secretly collect DNA of about, of about 150 Kurdish community members, uh, the court recordings revealed. So, and this was at a 2018 Kurdish New Year celebration in Burnaby. Uh, they handed out these free tea samples in numbered cups and swabbed for DNA. And in doing so, they identified a brother of the suspect. That led to the arrest of Ali, who was convicted, as I mentioned, in December of first-degree murder. Uh, the girl's name, by the way, is protected by a publication ban. Um, and the trial heard the DNA on a cigarette butt discarded by Ali matched uh, the DNA that they had. Uh, because the question from the get-go is, how did police zero in on this suspect, right? So now we know. Uh, Nikhil Novorosky is an assistant professor of forensic genetics at the University of Toronto, and she says legislation around police use of DNA analysis to identify genetic links to people involved in unsolved crimes hasn't caught up to the science. Genealogy has kind of taken on a life of its own, and we're catching up, exploring the ethics and the regulations and what types of samples should be used in genealogical pursuits. Right. Well, Greg Brown uh, spent 35 years with the Ottawa Police Service, retired as a detective sergeant, and uh, we thought we'd ask him about this case. Greg, thank you so much. My pleasure, Ben. This is one of those really interesting cases because when you, first of all, it didn't come out during the, the actual, it wasn't reported on during the trial itself, uh, but this idea that, that you have this lead and how do you how do you go about following it, right? And uh, I mean, obviously, police in this case had DNA that suggested they should be looking in a particular place. That's my reading of it, uh, as as reported in the media. I'm not intricately aware of the case, but that's certainly what it sounds like. They had a direction to go in that's focused their energies on a particular uh, community, and uh, ultimately that uh, that was fruitful and resulted, obviously, in the detection of the person responsible for murdering this 13 year old girl. And that person was convicted at their trial of first degree murder. So. The police were highly effective in in solving that case. Take me behind the scenes then when this when you have this, but you don't have because I gather that uh, from the media reporting at least that they had gone about uh, some other they'd gone about voluntary voluntary DNA uh, submissions. They'd gone about uh, doing some more covert stuff, trying to find disposed of and so on, and weren't getting anywhere. When you're in that position behind the scenes, 
how do you weigh your options? Because again, this has come under some criticism for the breadth of it, I guess. Sure. Well, I mean, what you would do on, certainly in my career, I've worked in homicide investigation for over eight years. So, I mean, when you're working on a, on an outstanding homicide, one that's not immediately solved and it's becoming protracted and it's complicated, you're working fairly closely with crown prosecutors, uh, you know, discussing because the more brains, the better, you know, discussing possible ideas for, for solving the crime, possible techniques. So, I would be fairly confident that the RCMP in this case would have been in frequent contact with Crown prosecutors and getting legal opinions about what the police can and can't do. I can tell you, Ben, just in preparing for, for our discussion, I was just quickly on my computer trying to find the exact quote, but I think it's from so long ago that the internet hasn't quite captured it. But it was from many years ago, the Canadian Supreme Court, one of the justices and I, and I remember this because I've used it in some of my academic writings, and it came up during some of my murder trials. This There's sort of a famous expression about, you know, the police aren't expected to play by the Marquis of Queensbury rules. You right. know? Boxing. Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. You know, society has an interest in having people that uh, murder 13-year-old girls apprehended and segregated away from the rest of us in society. And so the justices back then were saying, you know, the police have an important responsibility, and as long as they don't go too far over the line, then we're inclined to sort of, you know, let them do these gray areas, I think is is how you termed it. Um, and I'm imagining that's what's happening. I, you know, in reading the Globe story on this, it says Justice Bernard, I'm imagining that's the trial judge, mm-hmm. heard all the legal arguments and ruled that there was no abusive process. And Mr. Ali, the, the accused person, was convicted of, of the crime. And so I'm sure all these issues were aired in court. And lawyers, of course, I saw the defense lawyer quoted in the story. And lawyers, we have to remember, are advocates. You know, they're arguing for their client. And so, um, you know, I, I, I'm comfortable with what the police what the police did here. I understand the arguments more on an academic sort of perspective about slippery slope and police violating people's privacy rights and things like that. But it's important to understand what the legal threshold is there. It's not a clear cut situation. I guess it was the BC Civil Liberties Association uh, that came out and called it sort of unacceptable and reprehensible if they had failed to obtain a a warrant, right, that you need permission to do this or you need informed consent. Uh, Again, though, I mean, police, I I think sometimes when you look back at at the facts of the case, and this was a very high profile crime, police were coming under some fire for not having solved it. Uh, At least we didn't know what was going on behind the scenes and they weren't able to talk about it much. But this one took a while uh, to arrest someone. Clearly, they had an idea or a better idea than they were letting be known about where this perpetrator may be or what community he may be from. So, so there would be some pressure, I, I suspect, on investigators to, to to get something done. And they and they had this. I wouldn't call it. I won't call it a smoking gun. But they had a big lead here that we never knew much about. Right. Yeah. And I've been in that situation, Ben. Uh, you know, I, a case comes to mind. Uh, myself and and some of my colleagues investigated a triple homicide. Uh, where the perpetrator tied up three senior citizens and murdered them in a very brutal way. It right. was made national news. It was the retired. I remember that the judge, act- yeah, Judge Justice uh, Garon. You know, I was on that on that case, and uh, we had DNA for, from Ian Bush, who was the person ultimately convicted, but there was nothing to match it to. And so you have genetic material of the perpetrator, but it you don't have anything to match it to. And so we racked our brains trying to figure out how to deal with this. So I'm sure that's the position. And of course, that was very high profile as well. So that would be the position the RCMP investigators would be in. Clearly had the DNA of, of the perpetrator, but without anything to match it to, it's of absolutely no use. And so 
as an investigator, you're trying to think of legal ways, even if it's kind of stretching the boundaries to, to solve the crime. And yeah, because you know there's a perpetrator out there, right? And there is this there is a public safety element as well in all of this. Uh, I, I guess because of we, we're so familiar with drama, with police dramas. We're always under the impression that somehow, I mean, I think there's this idea out there that that the boundaries are easy to push. But as you've put it, generally speaking, you are in touch with with crowd because the, what, the last thing you want to do is have this case fall apart, right? Or the last thing the crown wants is to have this case fall apart on a technicality when you right. think you've got the right person. So clearly you're going back and forth a lot. And I suspect they probably shut down ideas that come up from investigators as well. I've been part of those conversations where I thought I came up with a brilliant idea that I thought would be legal or, you know, within the bounds of, of our law. And, and a prosecutor has said, well, maybe we might not want to do that or, you know, we'll have to think it through more clearly. Because, of course, our law suggests that what's prohibited under Section 8 in the Charter is unreasonable search and seizure. So unreasonable is a subjective word. And in our system, a judge will ultimately decide on the reasonableness or unreasonableness. And we also have the saving proviso in Section 24.2 that says, even if the police may have gone a little over the line here, excluding this evidence would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. And so we're going to let it in anyways. And and that's fairly common in cases where the police behavior is not egregious. And I found it kind of interesting, Ben, you know, when I was reading, I I understand your premier, I think you pronounce his last name, Eby. That's right, David Eby, right? And I noticed he was the former executive director of the Civil Liberties Association. And and now that he's wearing a different hat, he finds this uh, police behavior was perfect and he was complimenting the officers. So, you know, it's not a clear cut situation. It depends sort of which side you're arguing from. And uh, yeah, he he was for a long time sort of made his name as a big civil liberties champion. But here I think I mean, in, in some sense, you might have to just take his word for it when he looks at this and says, you know, the, the results uh, were worth were worth the means in this case, that there was, as you put out, uh, a reasonable, there was a reasonable grounds for intrusion here. Yeah. I mean, what, I guess what the analysis would engage is, is the 150, if I read it correctly, about 150 individuals at a party, were they harmed in any way other than, you know, having their DNA sent to a laboratory, probably in a, in a blind uh, sort of situation. That's always the way police want to have scientists look at evidence. You don't want any contamination or bias. And so was there actual harm to those 150 people? Was, was there some negative adverse linkage to their name? Did they suffer any harms because of it? Or was it just an exercise uh, that we're talking about in sort of an abstract way? I think right. that's what courts would look at the analysis. You know, did these people actually suffer any harm? And balance it with the public safety issue as well, given that this was the murder of a 13-year-old. Uh, right. You're right. I'm speaking with yeah. where the courts have decided on some of these cases. You know, yeah. you, you you mentioned it. You know, somebody that murders a 13-year-old girl in these kind of circumstances, and they're not caught. Well, they're at risk to do it again and again and again. And so there is a significant public safety interest here. Greg Brown is a retired Ottawa Police Service Detective Sergeant. He spent 35 years there. He's now with Carleton University. We're talking about this case uh, in Burnaby. We found out that there was a sting operation involving sort of handing out tea at a, at a Kurdish New Year celebration in Burnaby in 2018 as a way of trying to identify a suspect in the murder of a 13-year-old girl in Burnaby. And of course, it did lead, in fact, um, it did lead police to the brother of a suspect. They eventually arrested a suspect and he has now been uh, convicted of murder. Uh, Greg, I guess part of the issue here too, and you must have seen this as you in your time in homicide and elsewhere, is that technology moves fast, right? Technology 
moves quickly and making sure that you're keeping up with it and that you're not going to be sort of a test case where something gets thrown out must be part of the investigative process as well. It is. It's it's something that uh, that weighs on, on your mind when you're assessing whether you're going to do a what could be considered, I guess, a controversial or novel investigative technique. You know, how how is this going to work in court? What are going to be the arguments around excluding the evidence? That That's where the consultation with Crown Counsel is, is robust. And uh, certainly on many of the cases I worked, homicide cases that uh, that were protracted and complex, you know, you form quite a team work sort of situation with with your Crown prosecutors. It's rampant now that the um, leveraging of the, the um, sort of Ancestry.com yeah. technology and the police are solving all kinds of historical cases down here by using that technique. I mean, for, for the listeners that aren't familiar with it, you know, people are voluntarily, you know, I did it with my my family history as well. It was kind of fun. There was a free seven day trial on one of these sites. And I spent some time going through all that, which was really interesting. But millions and millions of Americans have submitted their genetic materials voluntarily to these companies. And what the police are doing now is accessing through court order that that massive data bank. And they're comparing their DNA within that system. And they're getting quite good at identifying, you know, with high degrees of probability. You know, your suspect is a 99.9% sibling of of Ben O'Hara Byrne, like he figure out who his brothers and sisters are. Oh, no, it's remarkable. What I mean, what a difference DNA. I mean, this goes without saying. And sometimes it's overblown, right? We, I think, I think you know, what they call it the CSI effect. I guess I don't know if that still holds true these days, but they call it the CSI effect for juries. But the the fact that even in a case such as this one, we had another very cold case solved in a couple and solved in Toronto recently. Uh, just the impact that DNA has had on the ability to solve these kinds of crimes. I don't want to say I don't want to say this with absolute certainty, but it strikes me that without that DNA and being able to find a match or at least find a, a connection, that the case of the 13-year-old in Burnaby might have been very difficult to solve. Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, if you have no eyewitnesses and you have no forensic uh, evidence, it, that could be a very challenging case. I I'm not afraid to admit that certainly on the, um, the Ian Bush case, the, the mm-hmm. person that heard the, the three people we spoke about earlier, uh, we had no idea who he was uh, until we had that genetic matchup. We had we had never heard of his name. He wasn't in the investigative file. And so absent the DNA match, that case could have still been unsolved today, which which is very problematic. Right. Another high profile one at the time, of course. And I guess as we go forward, we're just going to see more examples of this happening where uh, because in some sense, it's, it's almost to me, and I'm trust you. I'll, I'll let you explain this, but it sort of reverses the way an investigation would be carried out because you have something that leads you to somewhere quite specific, but you needed to find a way to to penetrate that that or to, to to make that work. So you're kind of working backwards in some way from a very specific clue and trying to figure out where that leads you. Absolutely, yes. I mean, and and we went through it on on the Bush case. I mean, having. Uh, and, you know, the scientists at, at the Ontario Forensics uh, Science Centre in Toronto, uh, we had a very good DNA sample. So they had a very elaborate profile. But without somebody to match that to, it's basically worthless. And I just wanted to pick up on your earlier point about the CSI effect. That is still alive and well, Ben. Right. Yeah. Yes. When, when you're prosecuting a homicide and, and you have a fairly straightforward traditional type homicide where you just maybe have a couple of eyewitnesses, some circumstantial evidence, maybe a, a statement or a confession or something, jurors, after watching so much TV and expecting this, they kind of are wondering, well, where's all the uh, showbiz? Where's all the, the fancy stuff with the DNA and the charts and the this and the that? Yeah, yeah. 
fingerprints you know. off water. That was always my favorite one, lifting fingerprints yeah. off water. Uh, Greg, thank you as always for your insight. I appreciate it. Hey, anytime, Ben. Have a great evening. 